If you have a Bible, turn to the book of Esther. Esther in your Bibles today. See if you can find it. Old Testament book, not easy to find. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Before Psalms. So if you find Psalms right in the middle. A few books before. As you're turning there, I want to, uh, I want to share a very humiliating moment in my life. I was, uh, I was a young gun, early 20s. That was a long time ago now, actually. And uh, my wife and I, we were newly married, and we were going to uh, Coast Bible Church. I wasn't even on staff. I was just sitting in the pew like you, and, and uh, we were going to a, a, a Friday night Bible study. We called it Melting Pot. It was a mixture of 20s and 30s. Some had kids, some didn't have kids. And I get in there, and I walk in the room uh, in, in uh, uh, Fred and Linda Colvin's house, uh, actually, back in the day. And we walk into their house, and I'm, I'm meeting new people, and there's all sorts of people. Casey and I were newer, brand new to the church. And uh, they were, we were shaking hands with everybody and getting to know everyone. And I, this person shall remain nameless. Some of you might know. I, I don't know. But uh, anyway, I was walking up to uh, one of the brand new fathers. He was a young man in uh, his late 20s, maybe, uh, yeah, late 20s or so. He had just had a baby. And uh, at Coast, at the time, we didn't know what babies were. Nobody had babies at Coast. It was like the beginning of this influx of babies, like crazy. All of a sudden, everyone started having babies. And as I looked at this little baby, I, you know, I was kind of confused. I had never seen one before. And I was looking at this baby, and this baby was just completely bald. Completely bald. Like, not a hair on her head. And I looked at her, and I looked at her dad, and I said, oh, like daughter, like father. And what I thought was a good joke was not a good joke, right? My, my, my wife, Casey, just went, boom, like that. Like, what are you doing? We're trying to make a good impression here. And I, I thought it would be a funny joke to just point out that, you know, daughter doesn't have hair and, and dad doesn't have hair. What do you know? Oh, I later apologized. And, and this, this guy, he's a great, great friend. Many of you probably know who it is. But nevertheless, he's not here anymore. But uh, we, we had a good laugh about it. But as I went home, my wife was like, honey, how could you say such a stupid thing? And I was like, I, I don't know, babe. I just, I looked at the baby and I looked at the dad and I just, I saw a similarity, you know? And, and I said, it was just a knee-jerk reaction. It was just a knee-jerk reaction. I, I just put my foot in my mouth. Today, in the book of Esther, we are going to see King Xerxes make a knee-jerk reaction. And thus the title of today's message. In Esther chapter 1, verses 10 to 2-4, Knee-Zerk's reaction. All right, all right. Knee-Zerk's reaction. I, I thought I'd get a groan out of that one. Hey, for those of you that missed last week, I want to just quickly bring you up to speed, very quickly. Uh, we're, we're not going to take too much on this past history, but if you missed last week, we're in the book of Esther. We just started last Sunday. Here we are this Sunday, chapter 1, verse 10. But a couple items that I want to take care of first. Number one is this. This book, Esther, has a, per, a certain kind of genre to it. And the genre that we're dealing with is what's called Old Testament historical narrative. As such, go ahead and bring up the next slide there, Josh. 
As such, as we bring up uh, this slide about Old Testament historical narrative, it describes what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. You know, when you read Paul or when you read uh, the epistles, the letters, you're, you're reading theology, you're reading things that, that you, know, you should follow, should obey, should listen to. Not so when you're reading the book of Esther. It's describing a story. It's describing what happened. And just because something happens in the book of Esther does not mean that the Lord necessarily endorses what is happening, both with Xerxes and, for that matter, with Esther and what Mordecai do, as we'll see later in the book. So as you read this book, read it with a careful eye, knowing full well that it is a narrative. It describes what happened, not necessarily what should have happened. Next point, a little bit of the background here. The author of Esther is uh, very familiar with Persian words, customs and palace business, but we don't know who the author is. Mordecai is the suggestion of most, who is a a main character in the book. You'll meet in the next uh, chapter here. But whoever the author is, this person is extremely familiar with Persian words, customs, and palace business. And finally, the setting. Where are we? We're in the palace of Susa or Shushan. 483 BC, this is the third year of the reign of King Ahasuerus, who is King Xerxes of Persia. And if you're wondering kind of where are we geographically, we've got a map for you. In fact, this is 100 years prior to Esther. 100 years before Esther, Persia looked like that in the bottom right-hand corner. This is about 586 BC. The, The big player in 586 was Babylon, right in the middle. And Babylon, of course, in 586, that was the year that they swept through and just crushed the Jews at Jerusalem and took them all the way to Babylon in exile as slaves. But fast forward just 100 years and look what happens to Persia. Persia goes from being this little tiny portion just above the Persian Gulf to sweeping across all of the Middle East into Europe as far as Greece, down to Africa as far as Ethiopia, and over to Asia as far as the Indus River of India. So in a matter of 100 years, really this is kind of the the apex of the Persian Empire. Uh, Cyrus did most of it. Cambyses did some along with Darius and then his son Xerxes. This is kind of the pinnacle of the Persian Empire. And I want to make mention that this empire covered 3 million square miles. It ruled over 50 million people, which accounted at the time for 44% of the world's population. That is the largest empire ever. Ever. No empire covered that many square miles and covered that many people. The Persians have had the largest empire in human history. And what's unique about the Persians, unlike the Babylonians before them, the Babylonians, they conquered people and took them away, took them away, took them away. When the Persians came through, they would conquer, but then they would often allow those people to return to their homelands. And thus, King Cyrus of Persia who was Xerxes' uh, great-great-great-grandfather, King Cyrus of Persia let the Jews go back home in 539 B.C. Many of them went from Babylon, even Susa as well, and returned to Jerusalem uh, just a number of decades prior to this moment in history where we are in the book of Esther. The Jews that remained in Susa of Persia 
were Jews that did not go back to Jerusalem for a variety of reasons we can speculate. But chronologically speaking too, I want to make mention of the fact that this book is, is along, along with uh, other books of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. If you read those three books, you're going to get a good cultural context for where you are. In fact, some scholars have, have pinpointed that you could actually insert the book of Esther between Ezra chapter 6 and Ezra chapter 7. So this is kind of an interesting uh, chronology that you can fit in there. One final map just to see the, the modern territories that we're looking at. We're looking at Iran. And that red dot represents the city of Susa, ancient Shushan, current city of Shush, Iran, where it is again over 110 degrees today. Now, let's get to the text itself. Would you stand with me as we read from chapter 1 of the book of Esther? We're just going to read one, uh, one verse 10 to the end of the chapter, but we'll get into chapter 2 as well in this setting. Esther chapter 1, beginning in verse 10 to the end of the chapter. On the seventh day, this is in the midst of a big feast that's happening. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehum and Biztha, Harban, Abigtha, Abigatha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, he commanded them to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him, being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom, it was said, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs. And one of the advisors, Memukan, answered before the king and the princes. He said this, Queen Vashti is not only wrong the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior, it'll become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, Mamukin continues, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they've heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If it pleases the king, Mamukin continues, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all the empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And this reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memukan. He Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language, that every man should be master in his own house and speak 
in the language of his own people. You may be seated. Back to verse 10 for just a moment. On the seventh day, this is the seventh day of a, a second feast that, that King Ahasuerus has put on in the palace. On the seventh day of the feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. We mentioned last week a couple things here, the, the word command there. Uh, in Persia, the decrees or the edicts of the king, according to scripture, according to Daniel, particularly chapter 6, and here multiple times in Esther, we read that the edicts of the king of Persia were irrevocable. <clears throat> they could not be reversed. And so when he makes a command, when he makes a decree, when he sets an edict, <clears throat> excuse me, it is to be followed, and it is to be followed unconditionally. King Ahasuerus, Xerxes, has issued a command that Queen Vashti is to appear before him. He desires to show off her beauty. And it indicates there that he is uh, merry with wine. Uh, uh, probably an indication there that if he wasn't uh, drunk, he was close to it. Uh, he was uh, becoming inebriated. He was intoxicated. And he, he at the moment, um, as in his intoxicated state, he wanted to show off the beauty of his wife, the queen. In fact, um, we had made mention uh, the week prior to the, the goblets of wine that the Persians would pass out at feasts such as these. Um, it says that earlier in chapter 1, it says that there were golden goblets that were each carved individually, hand, uh, fashioned individually, not one the same as the other. And in fact, in archaeological digs, some of these goblets have been unearthed. And this is one of the examples of one of those golden goblets that would have been used in the palace of the king at Susa, at Shushan. And these goblets are, are tremendous, tremendous uh, pieces that have been unearthed from parts of Iran in, in Persia, ancient Persia. Um, I, I wish we could uh, see more of the pieces here, but this gives you a glimpse of what these feasts, what these parties looked like. Let's continue on, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious and his anger burned within him. Verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, in parentheses there, these wise men, they're making, is, is, there's a parenthetical statement about these wise men. For this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him, and he lists seven names there. Continuing on in verse 14, the seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. And then this was the question, this was the inquiry from King Ahasuerus to his seven princes. Verse 15, what shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuchs? Vashti refused to comply. She refused to listen to the command of the king. We can only speculate as to why she would have done this. Nevertheless, we can certainly anticipate 
why it is uh, we, we read in ver- at the end of verse 12 that the anger of the king was absolutely aroused, absolutely angry. And he, he convenes his council, he convenes his, his seven princes. And uh, we might liken it, if you would, in, in modern times to like a cabinet, the presidential cabinet, if you would, the king's cabinet, the seven princes. And he convenes his advisory uh, cabinet and he brings them together and together they look over, they, they consider the question in verse 15 there, what shall we do? to Queen Vashti, according to law, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus. Keep in mind the setting that we are in. There's been a seven-day feast. Prior to that, there was an even larger feast. Everyone is having a good time. They're particularly having a good time because they're all becoming inebriated with wine. Xerxes, King Ahasuerus, is about to make a decision about his queen from an inebriated state of mind. How do you make decisions? How do you make weighty decisions? This was a weighty decision, as a matter of fact, for King Ahasuerus. Because as she refused to come, it would have been an affront to everyone not just the king, but to everyone in his presence. They all would have immediately looked at him and thought, what is he going to do? This was a weighty decision. And I, I ask you, how do you make weighty decisions? Do you make a knee-jerk reaction? Do you take time to pause, to pray, to consider what is before you? More on that in a moment. Let's continue on, verse 16. They ask the question, what should be done to her? And one of the advisors pipes up, Mamukin. Here he is, verse 16. And Mamukin answered before the king and the princes, and he says this, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, verse 17. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women so that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti, continue. Go ahead and go to the next slide there. To be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. Mumukin, the, the summary of his, of his speech, of his statement before the king, is that this is not just an offense to you, O king. This is an offense toward all of Persia. Just think of it, Mumukin continues. Women will hear of the queen's behavior. They will think to themselves, if this queen can do it, why can't I? And thus was born the concept of the Coast Bible Church Women's Retreat. (laughs) An annual weekend where women would compare notes on how to rule over their simple-minded husbands. Right, ladies? Isn't that what you do on the women's retreats? No? Of course not. Of course not. Well, if it were, if it were, ladies, we're on to you. Us guys are on to you. We know about your schemes. In fact, 
before uh, we, we let you go again, we're, uh, we're thinking of having a men's retreat of our own, as a matter of fact. Go ahead and pull up the next slide. We're, we're going to have our own men's retreat, and here's our theme, how to avoid a Vashti-like marriage. All right? Okay, that's, that's not going to be our theme. But men, uh, that is going to be our, our retreat. Guys, we are going to have a men's retreat. I'm, I'm being serious about that. April 8th through 10 at Green Oak Ranch, Scott Eichler is going to be leading us on a men's retreat for the first time in how long, Scott? Ever. Ever? Guys, are you excited about this men's retreat? All right. Well, we won't do that theme, though. We'll, we'll pick a better theme. I, I think there's probably better themes out there. All right. Well, in all seriousness, uh, the scriptures do outline how to avoid an Xerxes Vashti-like marriage. Paul's the one who tells us how to do that. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says this in the New Testament, in his epistle. He says, don't be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on, verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. You know, it's often, I've often said that critics of the outline here of Paul for having um, a beautiful and successful uh, Christian marriage. Critics of Paul here in Ephesians 5 always jump to verse 22 without reading, of course, verse 21 and verse 25. You see, when we jump to verse 22 and, and rip it from its context, it can sound very, very authoritarian. When we rip verse 22 from its context, it can sound very domineering. It, it, quite frankly, it can sound a lot like Mamukin and his advice in Esther chapter 1. But really, when we read Ephesians 5.22, we should be reading it always in its context. And it's interesting that inasmuch as the scriptures do urge women to submit, that is to say, to show honor, respect, deference, if you will, to their husbands, it also says prior to that, that as Christians, as men and women, as brothers and sisters in Christ, young and old, that we're to mutually submit to one another. And that doesn't just happen in the context of the church, that also happens in the context of a marriage. And so Paul is giving an entire uh, context here to the concept of mutual submission that happens to one another, showing mutual deference to one another, which is also something that wives are to show to their husbands, he goes on to say. And later on he says, and husbands are to show love, that is to say kind uh, deference, kind um, treatment toward their wives. We shouldn't look ever at Paul's words here and see some kind of authoritarian, domineering, Mamukin-like teaching. It's not the case. In fact, it's a beautiful picture, really, of Christ and his relationship with his church. This is the pattern for marriage, friends. Let us not forget it. Unfortunately for Xerxes, 
who was listening to Mamukan. Paul's advice in Ephesians 5 would not come for another 550 years. All Xerxes had was his wine and his intoxicated advisors. And they sat in the palace of Susa considering what should be done to Queen Vashti to deter other women of the kingdom from following her example. Mamukin continues in verse 19 of chapter 1. If it pleases the king, Mamukin continues, let a royal decree go out from the king and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree, which he will make, is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Mamukin. Mamukin says, King... Let a decree go out. Make an edict. Make an irrevocable word go forth from you that Vashti is to be barred from the king's presence for her disobedience. Effectively, that's an indication there of, of, of her divorce from the king, of her banishment from the king's presence. Secondly, that Vashti would be replaced with another Queen, And notice in verse uh, uh, 19 at the very top there, we're looking at the second half of the verse, at the very top here it says the term Vashti, that's the first time in Esther chapter 1 where Vashti's name is given without the title queen right before it. And so you already have in there an indication that Mamukan is showing uh, disdain for the queen, for her behavior. Let Vashti that Vashti shall come no more before the king. Mamukin's rationale, of course, is simple. He says, if you do this, O king, all wives will honor their husbands. That's his rationale. Guys, I'd like to ask you, um, because I know, I know what I do. Um, I don't know about you, but... uh, I often pride myself on my rationale, my logic, my sound judgment. But sometimes, no, oftentimes, that logic, that judgment that a man often relishes is a lot less sound than we think it is. Guys, we need to be careful about the decisions that we make. And about the way in which we go about making decisions. James says, be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to wrath. Don't make hasty decisions. Particularly when you're in the presence of your wife. Don't rush to judgment, guys. Pray about it first. Sleep on it. Get good counsel from trusted advisors. (laughs) Ideally, a little bit better advisors than these seven princes of Persia. Get counsel from trusted advisors. And when I say trusted advisors, I don't just mean yes men. I don't just mean people who you walk up to them and you say, see, this is what I told my wife and this is what I said and that's what she said. Can you believe what she said? And they go, yeah. 
Go for it. You, you, go, you continue down your path. Don't listen to what she said. And you go, yeah, yeah. Those are yes men, right? When you surround yourself with counsel, that, that all you're expected to, to hear back from them is just, just b- them bouncing back your own words. Those aren't advisors. Those aren't counselors. Those are just friends who uh, happen to think you're right all the time. Congratulations. That's not very difficult to surround yourself with those people. It's difficult, though, to surround yourself with people who really listen, really listen. And don't just listen to evaluate, to spit back a quick word to you, but listen to understand people who inquire and ask questions of you, who don't ask questions um, in a way that, de- that demeans you or ask questions in a way that, that causes you to feel defensive, but who ask questions in ways that, that cause you to think in, in, in a way that you hadn't thought of before. Xerxes didn't have um, advisors. He had yes men. He had men who helped him make a knee-jerk reaction. May we surround ourselves, guys in particular, with wise men who think critically, carefully, and with the eyes of the Spirit on all things. Xerxes did not do that. He made a knee-jerk reaction, and so a decree was written and was sent out to every province and every language of the kingdom that Vashti would be deposed, that another queen would take her place. That, that, uh, and he sent out these letters, right? This indicates, by the way, the, the vast uh, effectiveness of the postal system in ancient Persia. The Persians were notorious for a fantastic postal system, which led, by the way, to uh, the Greeks then coming later and also being able to take advantage of that. That's why the Greek language spread so quickly. But we see here that the letters are written, they're sent off in everyone's own script, their own language, and here was the decree that was sent out that every man, that every man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. The, Xerxes decreed that the queen would be deposed, that another would take her place, that Persian men were to rule their wives with an iron fist, and that all decisions, even the language, the language spoken in their home, were to be decided by the man. Big, tough guys. Or so they thought. This is kind of an ironic comment from David uh, Freeman. Take a look. There is some irony, he says, in the fact that this decree by which the king establishes the supremacy of the male in his own household initiates a story whereby the king, having got rid of one recalcitrant wife, ends up with one who controls him completely. We haven't read that far yet, but we will. There's a lot of irony in this book. And... uh, that's a uh, David Friedman is a Messianic Jew. He actually uh, died uh, ten miles from my hometown in, in a town of Petaluma. Um, very, very insightful comment there. Think about that as we continue forward. I personally, I always regret knee-jerk reactions, but as we come to chapter two of Esther, uh, we see that Xerxes may also be regretting his. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, And after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, 
and what had been decreed against her. He remembered Vashti. The word, by the way, the words after these things, scholars are a little confused uh, how much time has elapsed here. Some would say just days, moments. Others would say years, as a matter of fact. Some scholars would submit that this could have been anywhere from three to five years' time, actually. Why? Because Xerxes, in and around the time of 483, when this story was written, shortly thereafter, went out to the, uh, to the northwest, uh, to Greece, for various battles against the, the kingdoms of Greece, uh, the kingdom of Greece. He lost, ultimately lost those battles. So these, these feasts, these parties that he was a part of in Susa, one of the capitals of Persia, he was kind of garnering up support, if you will, garnering up the people's confidence right before war. And then off he went for a number of years to try and overthrow Greece, which he failed. And so it's possible, it's possible that after these things here in chapter two could have elapsed a great deal of time. We can't be sure. But nevertheless, let's suppose he's coming back having lost the war and he comes back to the palace and he remembers, oh my goodness, I deposed Queen Vashti. She's, she's not going to be waiting for me. She's not going to be the one who I am coming home to. There's an indication here in the text that there could be a measure of regret taking place in Ahasuerus. Well, regret can last a while for us regular folk. In fact, uh, for us uh, commoners, especially in a marriage relationship, when we do something that we regret, we literally have to live with it for a time, right? Um, But in Xerxes' case, uh, regret fades fast when you're the king. For his servants and his advisors have a vested interest to keep the king happy. And thus we come to verse 2. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Verse three, let's continue. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custody of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young women who pleases the king, the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king and he did so. As I said, when we make regretful decisions with our spouse, we literally have to live with it. When Xerxes makes a regrettable decision, he simply goes out and finds another Xerxes' officers were commissioned to go out to all the land, to go out and to bring back to the palace the most beautiful young virgins from all 127 provinces, from India to Greece to Ethiopia and everywhere in between. Upon arrival, these women would be entrusted with a year's worth of beauty preparations under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch. One by one, One by one, these women would spend a night with the king in hopes of being the one who would incur his favor and become the new queen. Yes, the story is starting to get a little graphic, a little shady. After all, it appears that Xerxes is about to have relations with hundreds of, 
of young virgins. And I am suspecting that you don't want to hear about that from me. And so the good news is, we have Pastor Tom. And he, next Sunday, he is going to come forward and he is going to talk about what it was like for Xerxes to, uh, to carry on this endeavor. Is that right, Pastor Tom? Yes, he's been doing a lot of research on this. And I want you, you folks to get ready because next week you're going to hear what it was like for Xerxes and these women to go through this experience. And with that, we'll press pause today on our story in Esther. But I have two questions for you to consider, just two things to walk away with. If you have your pen and your outline, you might want to jot this down. Number one, how do you make decisions? Do you make them hastily? Getting only the counsel of yes men or yes women? I mean, really think about that for a moment. I, I preached a message back in 2008. Um, it's probably, I would say it is my, the message that I was most proud of preaching um, in my younger days. It was called Counsel or a Rubber Stamp. And it was a story in, uh, from 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12. And it was a story of Rehoboam and how this king of Israel, he, he w- was he seeking counsel or was he looking for a rubber stamp? on what he wanted to do. Think about that. As you think about your decision-making process, are you looking for counsel or are you looking for a rubber stamp when you make decisions? And then secondly, does your marriage look more like Xerxes and Vashti or like the one described by Paul in Ephesians 5? I mean, are you... Do you just have, are you just worlds apart from one another? Are you a domineering man who, who uh, tries to give orders and, and you, you find that your wife is just not listening and for good reason she's not listening because you're trying to be so authoritarian in your approach, not showing maybe mutual deference and love to one another? Is that what your marriage looks like? Ladies, are you holding it against your husband? Because of the way he's treated you in the past? Are you, are you changing your conduct toward him because of how he also treats you? Or is your marriage like the one in, of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5? Do you have a marriage that is outlined in the ways of uh, Christian principles that looks like Christ's relationship with his church? There's a pattern there. There's good counsel there. If you need some help in marital counseling, um, I also want to make mention of that marriage conference that's coming up. Uh, October 8 and 9, I believe it is, over at Mariner's Ocean Ranch. Great conference. Some good speakers. It's a little, a little more costly than maybe what we're used to, I think 80 bucks a couple, but not too bad. If you need help, let me know. Our, our church will help you out with the cost. We can provide some marital counseling as well, and I've also got some, some more professional Christian psychologists who I really trust in that area. So as we read through this narrative, this story, we're reading a story. I want us to still think critically about our own lives, our own hearts, see where we need to grow in our walk with the Lord. Xerxes, he made a knee Xerxes reaction. Let's not, uh, let's not follow in that, that footstep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we Uh, want to be uh, very careful with how we read this story. We know that we're not just reading uh, just for casual interest. We're reading 
a part of your word looking for ways in which we can apply it to our lives. This is a story, Lord, that's 2,500 years old, yet the lessons are very fresh and surely can relate to us today. So keep walking with us, Lord, as we study your word, as we study the book of Esther. Keep surprising us for ways in which you want to teach us through this book. We commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.